Hey, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and so it's going to be helpful to you to have a copy of God's Word. If you don't own one, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, there's a table of contents at the front of it. And then as we make our way through the book of 1 Corinthians today, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. And so we began our study in the book of 1 Corinthians in January of 2017. So we've actually made a pretty good pace uh, to finish out these 16 chapters. And so today what we're going to do is to take an overview of of the book. And so uh, I hope you packed a lunch, maybe a light snack to carry you through as we journey through these 16 chapters, one by one, verse by verse. <laughs> Man, if that's, if that's what you're hoping for, that's not really so much of an overview as a reading out loud and run, offering a running homily, running commentary. And I don't have the voice, nor do you have the patience for that. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians in terms of really two things today. If you're to read the book of 1 Corinthians, there's any number of things that are going to hit you and just kind of catch you where you are, and these are largely going to be based on your experience. And so, what are the things that I have observed? What are the things that I have gone through? What are the things that I am currently experiencing? But if you were to to look at it and really begin to ask the question, where do I see the gospel within the book of 1 Corinthians and what effect is it having? Where do I see the gospel in the book of 1 Corinthians, and and, and what effect is the gospel having? What are the results that it's producing on the basis of this? That's kind of how I want us to look at it today, and and, and I want us to take really the the framework that comes from that, which uh, I believe to be that the gospel is working to unify us, and the gospel is working to give us an eternal hope. So the gospel is working to to create unity, and the gospel within the book of 1 Corinthians is revealed to be giving, to be granting an eternal hope. So let's think about it in terms of those two things. When Paul writes to this church in Corinth, there's there's no small amount of discord, disunity, division, infighting, gross immorality, heresy gone wild. I mean, just everything that's anything that could go wrong was going wrong. And so it's interesting, I think, that as he addresses this church there in Corinth, He doesn't immediately just kind of call for a sidebar and say, let's just establish the fact that you guys are insane, that you're doing things that aren't tolerated, and then from there, let me offer you some some advice and some direction. Instead, look what he says in chapter 1 and verse 2. After a brief introduction in verse 1, he turns to verse 2, and he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, now, Paul's not woefully ignorant. He, he's not just, you know, the glass is half full. But he looks at them, and, and these are people that he's giving the assumption of, man, these people are Christians. Now, if you read the letter uh, verse by verse, you read all the way through it, then you begin to have some questions and say, these people are Christians? And we would say, yes, these people are Christians. They're constantly displaying in their woeful inadequacy the gloriousness of the gospel. And he says, you are called To live in the midst of this, you're sanctified, you're made holy. Where's your holiness? Not in your goodness, not in your perfection, not in your backstory of all the things that people could say about you that are nice and enduring. Your goodness is found solely in the person of Jesus. He has made you holy. Your holiness rests in him. Look at what he does. He expands their level of cooperation. 
Paul goes after the issue of division and divisiveness within the church, not by telling them squarely, be united, come together, but he comes together, he, he, he erases really any legitimate standing for division by telling them what they already are. He says, you're sanctified, you're made saints together. With whom? With all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Look at what Paul has done. Paul is not merely content to come into this church in Corinth and say, listen, listen, we have the people who like this type of singing or that type of singing. We have the people who like this type of dress or that type of dress. We have the people who engage in in this activity or that activity. He comes to all of them and he says, you are caught up in this massive enterprise of Christianity that spans the globe. Everyone in every place who calls on the name of Jesus, this is who you're joined with. And so it calls them to this understanding and say, look, we're not just trying to manifest unity together. We already have it everywhere for everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all together are sanctified in him. We all together are called to be saints in him. We all have salvation solely in Christ's name. Christ comes at our cooperation and says, isn't that lovely? You're cooperating with one other church in your community. And so we cooperate with four or five. And he says, isn't that neat? You cooperate with with a handful. He says, listen, this is what I'm mightily at work doing all across the face of the earth, uniting men and women and churches together because we're all one body, his body, under one banner, his and his alone. Amen? He unifies us by expanding our cooperation. It's helpful, this church that was so uh, fraught with, with division over the issue of who their leaders are. And some would say, I follow Apollos, or I follow uh, Peter, or I follow Cephas, I follow Paul. And then you have the extra holy group that says, well, we, just, we just follow Jesus. We think that's good enough for us. Paul cast their human leaders in the right light in chapter 3. These people that thought that Apollos was so great, so mighty, Paul writes in verse 4 of chapter 3, he says, When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? He says, you're operating in the flesh, you're, you're doing things you shouldn't do, you're focusing on, on who your human authority is within this church, and, and this is wrong, is what he's getting at. No, it's natural, Right? It's natural to have a, a greater association with one pastor over another pastor. We commonly see this. I had this in any church I've ever been a part of. Man, I really just resonate with this staff member over that staff member. But the way that it should work in some sense is that every person that serves on staff, every pastor that stands before you should be plug and play. If I die or move, this church should just roll on. You shouldn't skip a beat. Some of you should be sad. Some of you should feel bad about the gladness you have. But, <laughs> but we should just move on. Listen, Paul gets in, and they're overly preoccupied with this idea that really Apollos is this guy who really spoke more to my needs. And they say, are you kidding me? Paul is this guy, and, and, and he's an apostle, and he's so much more important. And, and he's not using all these words that I don't understand. Paul is really this common sense guy that I, that I really kind of resonate with. And so Paul just sets them all straight. He says, what is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to eat. Paul says, look, we're just trying to be faithful. We're just trying to serve the Lord and and, and to serve you in serving him. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
when we rightly understand who our leader is, it's Jesus. Every pastor, every minister you'll ever have at some point will disappoint you or you're blind. They're going to say something, do something that's radically going to offend you, disappoint you. They won't even notice it. If they do notice it, perhaps they won't care. But Christ is ever faithful. He's ever faithful. And so we're called to give our allegiance to him, not to leaders who stand in front and entertain for 30 or 45 minutes, who challenge us for 30 or 45 minutes, but a Jesus who never fails, who never disappoints, and who never goes away. Paul gives us a picture of unity through casting our leaders in the right light. Paul conveniently goes through and he begins to to expose our inconsistent application of the truth of God's word. This church in Corinth loved the Lord's Supper. They thought it was a great time to get together, to drink too much, to eat too much, and to loosen the toga. And so Paul is going through and he's exposing this and how this is a significant issue there in Corinth. And he says, listen, listen, some of you show up and you eat too much. Some of you show up and you drink too much. Don't you have homes to do this kind of behavior in? In chapter 11 and verses 20 and 21, Chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, he says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. This is clearly not a Baptist church. (laughs) They completely misunderstood the unity that the Lord's Supper creates. Previously to this, prior to this bit of, of direct address, Paul had said in chapter 10, In verses 16 and 17, he's speaking of the cup. He said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? When we take baptism, baptism is a once and for all sign of commitment. But the Lord's Supper is an act of recommitment and of renewal. And so we come together over and over and over again, and we share the cup together. And he says, is it not a cup of blessing that we bless? And and so they were undoing that blessing By virtue of rushing into this, they were marginalizing those who couldn't get off work early. They were marginalizing those poor in their community. And so he says, this is what the cup is. And then he turns to the bread. He says, the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? With this one bread that is broken, that is spread out, we all take, we all observe together. And it displays our unity. Or, as in Corinth, it displays their lack of unity. The gospel is wonderfully at work exposing our inconsistencies in its application and calling us to a right understanding. The gospel, rightly applied, unifies us through giving us a diversity in giftings. I was talking to Carol B. this morning, and maybe this isn't appropriate because I've not actually processed through what I'm about to say, which is generally frowned upon. So let's go anyway. And I just said, you know, it, it, it would be wonderful if really everybody had my personality and, and my gifting and my attitude and just that way because they could all just go about and do the various things that I need them to do without ever thinking about it. I said, but this would be wonderfully terrible because they'd have all of my blind spots and all of my weaknesses and, and, and nobody to offset them. And even, even as I was saying this to her, I could see in those eyes of wisdom, quiet judgment. <laughs> Recognizing Her strength was shining in the midst of my stated, obvious to her, weakness. The gospel at work in us 
gives us diversity in giftings. Paul talks a great deal about spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14. Their misuse, their abuse. In verse 4 of chapter 12, he says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. I mean, we are all dependent upon one Spirit of God to give all of us our gifts. Amen? And this Spirit does not breed confusion. This Spirit does not breed a spirit of competition. So when we recognize when confusion or competition is coming in and when we have this sense of, oh, we need to elevate so-and-so or, oh, we need to elevate so-and-so, this is working against what the Spirit would have us to do because the Spirit has us to work in cooperation with one another. Verses 6 and 7 say, and there are a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone, every Christian at all times, is fully dependent upon the Lord to give strength, to give a gift, to give enabling. And so every exercise of whatever spiritual gift you have should find you being more consistently dependent upon the gifting of the God who gave it to you. Not growing in your independence, but growing in your dependence of him. And we recognize that our gifts are meant to be used for the building up of the body. Verse 7, he said, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. Recognize this. The spiritual gifts that God gave to you in salvation, there's some aspect of, man, it just feels good to use the giftings God has given me, right? So if you come to be aware of, man, I'm really gifted in teaching, I'm really gifted in exhortation, I'm really gifted in mercy, I'm really gifted in uh, the extension of love, or just whatever various things that God has given to you, and you become acutely aware of these things when you use them, you have this sense of, I'm operating under the sphere that God has given me. I'm operating in the effectiveness that God has called me. I'm fulfilling the thing that he has set before me. And so you have this sense of just kind of purposed endeavor. But the tendency in this is to be self-satisfied, to be most satisfied when our giftings respond to people responding well to us. But look at what he says here in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for whom? For the common good, your gift is most beautifully and perfectly displayed when someone else benefits from your application of it. Your gift is most perfectly engaged and used when someone else is benefiting from that gift because that's the purpose for which God gave to you this gift. Not that you would feel primarily good about using it, but so that you could build someone up in its use. Your spiritual gift is beneficial and necessary for the overall health of the kingdom and for the health of whatever local church you happen to find yourself in. And I think I would have you know that withholding that gift breeds detriment to the church. It is unhealthy for whatever church you're in if you aren't using your gift because your gift is necessary. The gospel reveals us to be diverse in the various gifts that God has given us, but it's also making us necessarily interdependent upon one another. Verses 21 through 26, look at what Paul writes in chapter 12 still. Using this metaphor of the body, he says, the the eye can't say to the hand, "I, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, they're treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have some care for one another. Think about this. All the various ways that you are weak and all the various ways that you are struggle within a body functioning well are meant to be supported and complemented by someone who doesn't have those same weaknesses and struggles as you. And so if you find yourself in the middle of some weakness, in the middle of some struggle, if the body's functioning well, and it doesn't always, but if the body's functioning well, what should happen is that a brother or sister who is strong in the thing that you're weak in comes alongside you and they encourage you. They use your, their gifting in your weakness. And listen to this. This is the cool thing that God's doing. Their strength could not be displayed if you wouldn't open up about your weakness. It can't be. The strength that God has given them, the things that he has carried them through have no application point if your weakness isn't there and on display. It calls for us to be vulnerable. It calls for us to be transparent. And unfortunately, in the midst of transparency, in the midst of, of wild honesty, some of us are going to be radically hurt. This is just how people are. We are going to disappoint you. You are going to be hurt. We are not purposing to do this. Hopefully the person that hurts you has not purposed within their heart to fail you, to disappoint you. This is a part of living in close community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Our giftings in the unity that God desires for us to have requires us to be necessarily interdependent to one, on one another. He gives this beautiful picture in verse 26. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Man, then I could know that there's a family suffering and be unmoved. There should be no place for that. There should be no calm with that. There should be no sense of satisfaction with that. We should all be radically dissatisfied and bitterly upset when we know that suffering is taking place within the lives of a family of our church. Amen? He says, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. We don't tend to have a great deal of difficulty with this, except for the, the times when we're occasionally jealous of one another. Churches have to be necessarily interdependent. Our lives have to mix. We have to share we have to be known, we have to be vulnerable, and we have to be willing to be hurt. Recognize that the gospel over the course of this book is, is mightily at work exposing our sins. It would be so much easier in some sense if our sins remained secret, right? Keep it hidden, keep it safe. If our sins remained hidden, if they didn't remain within the public sphere, if nobody ever had to know, so I could just, you know, sin one day and live gloriously to the Lord for five minutes the next afternoon. Sin one day and live glorious to the Lord for six minutes the next afternoon. I'm growing in sanctification. But the gospel is mightily at work in you, in us, exposing our sins. As Paul goes through and he begins to expose the sinfulness in this church, he opens up chapter 5 and he says, listen, there is sin in this church 
that is so distasteful, so incredibly repugnant, that when pagans in Corinth hear about it, they're like, that is nasty. I can't believe they tolerate that. He says, it's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality, the kind that's not even tolerated among, a, among the pagans. And so they look around and they're like, oh, we did know about that. We did hear about that. They're acutely aware, but, but choosing to do nothing about it. They don't want to expose it. They don't want it to be seen. They want instead to quietly ignore it. But as Paul uses the illustration of leaven, and he says the idea that, 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 that leaven le- begins to move and spread through the whole total of it. Sin that lives in darkness infects everyone. And that's what this whole thing was designed to show. <laughs> That couldn't have happened at a better time. <laughs> Unless, of course, we're in 1 John, where it's the whole darkness and light motif. That would have been. Let's redo 1 John, cue the lights. <laughs> the gospel calls for us to, to move from being sinful. So it calls for us to be graciously involved in the lives of those around us, that when we see them engaged in sin, we don't beat them over the head with our Bibles. We don't guilt them. We don't write about them on, on, on some type of social media. We don't send them anonymous letters. But we graciously call them out of it and say, the gospel declares this is not who you are. The gospel graciously declares, declares this is not what you do. Come out to experience the goodness of our God. Paul addressing the issue of lawsuits. They were engaged in all these lawsuits, just suing one another, brother suing brother, sister suing sister in the church. And Paul comes at it and he says, would it not be better to suffer? Would it not be better to be defrauded in chapter 6 and verse 7? And as it's in our suffering willingly, we testify to the goodness of the gospel. There will come a time when you are sinned against in the body. Now listen, listen. I'm not saying this is okay. I'm not saying you should pass over it. In fact, many of these instances require an immediate and active involvement of church leadership and those others around you. We're not, we're not asking you to tolerate sin. We're just saying that there will come a time when you're sinned against, and it could be that the posture that the Lord wants you to assume is one of willingness to be defrauded and a willingness to suffer. This is a, a, an incredibly difficult application point to make within the course of our lives because we frequently feel that if somebody does me wrong they deserve to suffer for it and we want to see them suffer publicly for it this doesn't see us moving in very much graciousness at all recognize that the gospel sets us free from our sins paul writes to this church in corinth and he has this wonderful reversal that he describes in chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 He starts in, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Can you just think if he stopped there and asked you to recall your last week, to recall your last six months, to recall your last couple of years, and just tells you, are you not aware that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And you're thinking, there's no place for me. There's no hope for me. And then he goes further and begins to describe the various things. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And to this list, we could add the hypocritical good person, the person striving for, for, for perfection on their own, the gossiper, the liar, the cheat, the wayward in heart, the indifferent, the backsliding. He says, do you not know that all of these, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God? And then he hits them, he says, and of such were some of you. We remember our past. We remember our failures. And we are opposed to an enemy who has, a, has them categorized and cataloged and reminds you of them at your weakest. He finds you in the middle of some response and you're ready to step out for the Lord and to boldly proclaim his sufficiency. You're ready to share the gospel with somebody and the enemy reminds you of your failure. He reminds you of your hypocrisy. He reminds you of your backsliddenness and in that moment says, should you really be the one to share? You're finally making great strides in the Lord and you see his sanctification at work in you and you feel closer to him and then the enemy reminds you of all the various situations and scenarios whereby you chose to follow the flesh instead of following the Lord. And he says, should you really be so satisfied in him? Do you really even know him? Is your life really a testimony to his goodness or is it merely that you believe something and verbalize it at some point but you're not really follower of him you see a follower of him wouldn't fail a follower of him wouldn't do these things are you really even a follower of him Paul goes in and he says of such were some of you then he talks about God's gracious investment in you he says you were washed he said God caught you completely muddied with sin carrying the stain of sin in your body and he made you clean you were sanctified you were completely set apart and against the lord and he came in and he has made you holy he has given you his holiness to where is your own you were justified in the name of the lord by the spirit of our god recognize that nothing in this list it is, is a description of the good thing you've done these are all only a description of the good things he has done for you in Jesus. You are not your past. Your present is secure in him and your future is held safe by him. You cannot lose it. You did not earn it. God's goodness has set us free. And so we are united in our common backstory and we are united in the beautiful future that he lays before us. And the gospel grants to us an eternal hope. In chapter 15, which, which is kind of this, 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 this epic crescendo that he gives us that the whole thing has been building towards. He says, sin has no place. Your present sufferings have no real, real lasting impact because your future is certain. And your future rests in him and the goodness of his gospel. He shows us that it is steadfast, that we are saved securely. In verse 2, let's just read verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Any Christian that ever finds themselves standing in something solidly only ever stands in the surety of the gospel. It's not our good week. It's not our good month. 
It's not our, uh, you know, this is just how we're doing in the midst of on our way to our next sin. We only ever stand in the surety of the gospel because it is the gospel verse two by which you are being saved. The gospel is at work saving you even today. Isn't this good news? Man, it's not just that the gospel pulled you out of the muck and the mire of your former existence. The gospel is at work saving you today. So when you find yourself engaged in sin or desiring to follow the the lust of the heart, you find that the gospel is at work saving you even in the midst of this struggle, even in the midst of your doubts. The gospel is mightily at work saving us. This gospel grants eternal hope by establishing the primacy of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus. Verses three and four, Paul writes and says, for I delivered to you as a first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus didn't accidentally die. Jesus didn't find himself this, this kind of caught up in this furor of everybody saying, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe we should follow him. And Jesus says, ah, I can't disappoint them. In the providence of God, before the foundations of the world, God had set and purposed that this would be how he redeems humanity, that Jesus would die for our sins. That which is prophesied in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus and is still true today. He died in accordance with the scriptures, but he did not remain dead. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. God establishes the primacy of the gospel. There are any number of things that if somebody were to come to you and say, what must I do to be saved? If you were to go through and to say, well, you know, friend, you need to get your life in order. You need to retire some debt. I've looked at your education stuff. It's way out of whack. I've seen your social media profiles. Nobody likes you. There's a reason your friends sit at zero. And so all of these various things you need to do before you can ever become a Christian. Oh, they've lied to you. They're beginning to lead you down a path that will only ever produce hurt, that will only ever produce a sense of needing to do more over the course of your life. What has accomplished the gospel is Christ's death, burial, and his resurrection. What saves us is our union with him. You can never be good enough. You can never be right enough. You can never be pure enough. You can never be kind enough. Jesus has completed the work of the gospel and invites you to come in. This work of the gospel grants to us an eternal hope by setting our hearts on a bright future. In the midst of the struggles of our day, in the midst of kind of looking around and recognizing how difficult everything is, God gives us this beautiful picture of what our future will be in chapter 15, verses 51 through 58. He begins to describe it. He says in verse 52 that we're going to be changed in an instant. He says, in, 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 the, in the blink of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. There's good news that we will be changed. God will strip away our mortality. He will strip away our perishableness and he will dress us out imperishable and immortal. And all this hangs on the truth and fulfillment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gives us an eternal hope even in the midst of struggles and suffering because he gives purpose to our standing and he gives purpose to our work. In verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, in essence, on the basis of the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Don't be moved. Find yourself standing firmly and squarely on the gospel of Jesus. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. God has saved you. He saves you still. And he gives you good work to be about. In the midst of parenting and seeing our kids go wayward. In the midst of working and seeing our work come for naught. In the midst of struggling and seeing our struggle never end. There is this tendency to lose hope. If you find your hope and your purpose and your principle and your identity in the things you're able to accomplish, you will always struggle to maintain the brightness of that. But if you find your hope and your identity in the finished work of Jesus, in the sure promise of his future, all of your work can be changed. Your work will no longer be in vain because you're not working to do more, to be more, to have more. You're working for the good pleasure of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In him, our work is not in vain. It's interesting, all the various things that Paul covers in the book of 1 Corinthians, and there's so many and so diverse, that what he chooses to book in this letter with is a message of grace and hope. In chapter 1 and verse 3, he wrote to them, to this church he's getting ready to take through all the various ways that they're failing and struggling. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. His extension to them isn't be more, do more, be more faithful. It's more readily appropriate the goodness of God extended to you in his grace. This unmerited favor of our Lord Jesus rests on you. And then as he ends the letter, it's not a reminder, look back over all the various ways you have failed, look back all the various ways that you have been wayward. At the end of the letter, as, when he, as he's addressed unity, as he's addressed the eternal hope, at the end of the letter, he draws back together this theme of grace, and he, he prays for them that the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. What will keep us faithful? What will keep us unified? And what will keep our hope set on the eternal promise of the resurrection? It's firmly, squarely, daily, living in the reality of his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace, for its extension, and for our reception of it. Father, I pray for those here in this hearing that have yet to submit themselves to you. God, even as they've heard of the gospel and how it unifies, and they've heard of the gospel how it works to give us an enduring hope. They know that they're not living with the surety of the gospel in their lives. So God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would call them to your son. God, that they would forsake sin and turn to Jesus, proclaiming him Savior and Lord. God, I pray that you would be with us that the last two years we've spent studying this letter will be fruitful in us. That we would work to make these truths plain and clear, brilliantly and beautifully displayed as we rest in the sure promise of your gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ. 
We submit these things to you in his name. Amen.